Good morning, elect exiles. Uh, if you're new with us, we're walking through the book of First Peter, and uh, that is how I continue to, to greet you, church. Uh, I, I hope this continues to uh, uh, form and shape the way we, we think of ourselves. These are two very important declarations. This is how Peter opens up his letter, and well, we're 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 in a transition. Uh, section in in first peter really three through our text is about being god's elect people uh we're, we're going to start looking more in the, the weeks to come what it means to be exiles uh, this week our text really has a hinge point because it's a it's a grand declaration of the many ways in which god has elected us called us the the many descriptions of who we are but before he he starts explaining the ways in which we'll live as exiles in this world in different ways. This morning, we're, we're looking at this final list of, of declarations about the church, who we are, what God has said about us, what God has called us to. I want you to see the, the simple message this morning is we are called to be God's people who proclaim him. We're called to be God's people who proclaim him. If you're taking notes, there's three points. The church's position, the church's position, the church's transition, and the church's commission. Uh, the position is very clear. Verse 9, you, you see these four very important declarations. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, quite a few things we've seen so far. The word chosen is the same word, actually, for, for elect. We've seen this over and over again. Jesus is the chosen one. We are chosen in him. We're, we're, we're the elect race. We're a different kind of people now. The, the royal priesthood, that was what we looked at significantly last week as we considered Jesus the living stone upon whom we're all built up as a temple. A holy nation. We've seen the call to be holy. Therefore, be holy as God is holy and as he's commanded us to be holy. And then a, a people for his own possession. We've been purchased by the very blood of Christ. So we, we, we've seen these concepts so far, but he's, he's pulling them together with, well, actually a lot of Old Testament language and a lot of Old Testament declarations for these Gentiles who are now the church. A chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are borrowed from one of the most significant passages, many of them, that Josh read earlier, Exodus 19. As we consider these words, I, I, I want you to think about them first as a, as a mirror. If you're a, a believer, if, if you remember the church, these are truths that are supposed to be telling us who we are. They're, they're informing us about who we are because of what God has done and what God has said and what God has declared about us. It's important that as you look into this mirror, you, you don't quickly forget who you are. It's very important as we consume and try to digest these theologically packed declarations, we, we don't easily forget. We don't, we don't walk out those doors and, 
and just go on our way. To, to give a, an analogy, it would be like being married. But when you leave the house, you forget. And you start flirting with other people. If, if you forget who you are in a covenant relationship, it, it should affect your behavior. And if we forget who we are in a covenant relationship, we're, we're going to be adulterous. We're going to be unfaithful. That, that should sound crazy and terrifying. These are covenantal declarations from the God who has committed himself and promised himself to us so that we would then be his people and, and not leave forgetting who we are but, but to, to know how to, how to live according to these wonderful declarations. As we consider these, I want to make sure we have kind of a, a theological framework. Because these declarations were given to Israel in Exodus 19 before the Ten Commandments. These were important grace-given declarations for Israel to help them understand what these commandments were to, were to be and, and how to live in the land God was giving them. The church doesn't replace Israel. That's not what's happening here. What, what, what's happened is where Israel failed in every way of the covenant identity God had given to them, Jesus came and fulfilled every way in which God had given them that commitment. He is the true king of kings. He is the great high priest. He is the true and final absolute prophet. All those ways in which Israel was supposed to function for this world, as God's people, they failed and failed and failed and failed. And, well, Jesus is the true new Adam. And Jesus is the great high priest. And so we as a people are the outflow of his fulfillment of all God has said. Let's first look at a chosen race. Now, words have a range of meaning. Oftentimes we adopt unhelpful meanings. Race, that could refer to how fast you are in a foot race. Race here is about people, and today too often race is referred to as, as, as applying to someone's skin color, and that's just not helpful. That's, that's, that's borrowing from some Darwinian idea, that as if there's different humanities. Very clear, every human being is made in God's image with the same dignity, honor, value, and worth. That, 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 that's, that's this level one theology. That's, that's, that's the groundwork theology when we think about humans and the human race. The, the word race here is really the word genus. It's, it's the same word we get genealogy from. It's the, the people group, your lineage, where, who you're born into, the, 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 the humanity, the, the, the family. For Israel, they were a people group. They were all actually born of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob has name change. And he had 12 tribes. To, to, to be the people of Abraham, to be the, the Israelites there, it, it, it is meant to be a, an actual born-in group. And the sign for that born-in group is on the eighth day, every male will be circumcised to identify who belonged to that group. God had just proven his commitment to these people. He took them in as a small number, around 70, into Egypt to protect them from a famine. 
He also took them into Egypt so Egypt would serve as an incubator. So they would grow into a, a great people, a, a numerous people. And then when God pulls them out, he's, he's going to make them a nation there on Exodus 19 in, in, on, on Mount Sinai. Here the, the idea that they're a, a people born of Abraham, a people born of, of Judah, a people of, of Israel born, well, that, that can't be what Peter is declaring here with chosen race. Because if we look back at chapter 1, verse 1, it's, well, elect exiles of the dispersion in all kinds of different cities, and these are all kinds of different people. It's no longer just Israelites, it's Israelites and Gentiles. It's not just one birth family, it's, 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 it's all kinds of people. Race cannot mean that, because even in this room we have different kinds of people groups. Biblically, there are two races. In the Old Testament, it was Israel versus the nations. It, it was God's people who, who, who were supposed to be a light to those nations. Those nations were raging against God and his elect. In the New Testament, it's those who were in Adam and those who were in Christ. Th- those who are still in Adam in death and destruction and sin and those who have believed in Jesus and are now united with him as a new Humanity. The Adam, the head of a sinful humanity destined for death, or Christ, the head of a new humanity, redeemed. He is the chosen one so that we have become the chosen race. There's a restoring of our purpose as image bearers. There's a restoring of, of who we are, not, not because of, of who we're born into, but, but rather that we've been born again in Christ. As God's beloved people, we're, we're not born of flesh and blood, as John tells us in his prologue. No, we're born again by the very will of God. You, you, you've, you've, you've been beloved and chosen to be a new kind of people, restored to that original design as image bearers. Well, secondly, we see this declaration of a royal priesthood. Now, this one's kind of fun because, you know, royal, we can think of a, all the different trappings of, of, of a crown, maybe something really, a cool hat like a Beretta or, or the Roman collar. Why anyone wants something like that on their neck, I don't know. We, we have these pictures of what royalty is, and, and we usually think of a lot of privilege that comes with power. Or today, most royalty is just some kind of figurehead that does nothing. Or, or a, a, a priest, you know, it's someone who, who's representing others and, and going before God. The problem when we think about royalty today is it's, it's a privilege that's self-serving too often. It's a privilege of power that's self-serving, whereas what's happening here is God has given us a, a high calling, uh, renewed the, the royalty that Adam had in the garden exercising God's good dominion. Adam was supposed to do this in the garden. That was his number one job, to to rule well according to God's design, to rule God's creation as a steward, as a representative. Praise God, Jesus came to be the true king who showed us the way of good rule, gracious rule, a, a rule that pours himself out for his people, 
He came to be a great high priest, the one who provided the once-for-all sacrifice and the true holy of holies that takes away sin forever for those who believe. And to think about this royal priesthood, the, the key words that we should have just hanging underneath there is it's, it's a stewardship, not a selfishness. To, to be in God's royalty is a, is a stewardship to, to exercise his reign. To, to be a priest means we're seeking to serve. A little bit later, we'll look at the main purpose of all this is to proclaim his excellencies. And let's just, if, if you're stewardship, if, if your rule, where, wherever you have a, a, an influence, wherever you have some dominion, if it's not used to proclaim his excellencies, you, you, you might be in danger of being a diva rather than a true royal ambassador of Christ. But what a high calling that we meditate upon last week so significantly. A new kind of people, of priests. To give to God acceptable sacrifices, a, a holy priesthood to, to be built up to represent him to the nations. We're meant to be a witness of God's good rule to one another, to the world. We're meant to be a, a good witness of his sacrificial love to one another and to the world. Well, the third one, a, a holy nation. So, so we've got a, an elect, a chosen people. We, we, we've got a royal priesthood that's, that's very functional to, to exercise reign and to, to, to make right sacrifices. And now a, a holy nation. Well, that, this is what's unique about Israel there in, on Mount Sinai is the people become a nation. They, they become a political state. Once God takes them through the wilderness, which is going to take a lot longer than it needed to be because they were unfaithful, but once God takes them through the wilderness, they go into Canaan, they then set up a, a kingdom. And they were supposed to be a particular people in a particular place to exercise like a political state. Church, the will of God is not for us to be a political state like Israel. I say that with absolute confidence because we could just look down the page in chapter 2 and see the church and the human institutions of the state are next to each other, and we're told how to relate to the state. So, so nation here changes the meaning just like race did, or there's, a, there's an expanded different kind of understanding of it. We're not looking for some kind of Christian nation, and if we wanted to study history, that never works out so well. We're, we're not to be a political state. Rather, we're, we're supposed to be embassies of the kingdom of heaven spread throughout the world, united together. These are the church and the state. They have two different kinds of authorities. We need to understand what those two different authorities are, and Scripture is very clear and helpful about the boundaries and barriers. We also be very clear here that we, we don't pretend there's some wall that says the church shouldn't be a significant influence in our nation. But we also need to be clear the most significant influence the church will have in our nation is when the church commits to being the church, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the, the holy nation. The, the problem with every institution is it's full of sinners, and we typically don't want to do our responsibility and want to take somebody else's responsibility on. 
we've got to stay in our lane. We, we, we have to know that we're called to be a holy people. Set apart by God, for God, to obey him and, and present to the world what, what his light is, what his way is. We're called to be a holy nation because you now believe you now belong to a heavenly kingdom. If you're a believer, you have dual citizenship. Whatever nation you belong to here on this earth and when the kingdom of heaven. With every citizenship, you have certain rights, privileges, and responsibilities. In our nation, the United States of America, there's a clear law. There's clear laws you must obey. There's also a clear duty. There's a responsibility to be a good citizen that helps build up a society. And I want to say this, I'm so thankful we have a Bill of Rights that protects so much of what we want to do and need to do as a church. But as we think about that dual citizenship, as we think about that, 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 how these two things come together, let's just think about the Bill of Rights and the freedom of speech. As an American citizen, you can say whatever you want. As a Christian, you can't. As a Christian, God says there are things you cannot say. Your citizenship in heaven limits your free speech. You cannot blaspheme. You cannot slander. You cannot lie. It's a way of of demonstrating the, the, the ways in which we're going to seek to live as good citizens here, but to realize the citizenship in heaven is is first and has a priority. It makes it Difficult and sometimes confusing, but we need to make sure that God, as his citizens, he gives us the law of Christ. Speak truth and love. Forgive one another as you've been forgiven. As citizens of heaven, as a holy nation of God, you have rights and privileges. You, you get to call God Father? That's when we take for granted you, you get to proclaim the gospel and see God at work. What, what is interesting I want to present here is being a good citizen of heaven, your, your holy nation citizenship, that is what's going to make you a better citizen here on this earth. The fourth declaration of who we are is a people for his own possession. Now, there is no direct Old Testament reference like the other three, but even there in Exodus 19, we're, a, we're his treasured possession, we're his beloved and, and, and his desired possession. There's, there's a number of passages that this seems to be paraphrasing. But notice there, it's God's love that has directed his attention and his affection upon a very particular people who were undeserving. The... the, the God, who who has claimed a people for his own possession, to to belong to him, to to be owned by him. Because he purchased us with his own blood. A people who are brought to God. This is why when we hear God loves us as his own possession, there's a comfort to it. And we also see this is why God would say he's, he's jealous for his own people. Because he's loved us. 
so that we would know how to love him. And he's, he's jealous for his people. The, the, the picture that's also presented in Scripture that, that's similar to this is Christ, the, the bridegroom, has, has, has claimed his bride for himself to love her and care for her and cherish her. People for his own possession, there's, a, there's an intimacy. There's a, there's a personal way in which God comes to us to, to bring us back to himself and love. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, I, I, I can hear the, the idea, well, I don't want to be, I don't belong to God. What, what, what possession? Does that just make me a thing? No, it's, it's, it's much more personal and loving. He's, he's, he's coming to, to, to draw back a people, but if you don't belong to Christ who gives life, you, you belong to sin and death. You are not your own. You're not just some free agent roaming around. You belong to someone. We are all designed to serve a master, and we all serve a master. The gracious thing God does is calls us out of our darkness, out of our slavery to sin, out of death and destruction, and he calls us to his light and his love. That's the invitation for you today. As we think about who we are, again, just scratching the surface of what these incredible declarations mean in, in, in some of the, the Old Testament background, they all have to complement one another. In order for us to have a true understanding of who we are, we need these, and we need the picture of the body. We, we have the, the bride and bridegroom language. There, there's so many ways in which God speaks of his people. We're elected out exiles. We're called to be and meant to be little outposts of God's kingdom, of God's light, given direct declarations of who we are to believe and, well, direct commands to obey. I believe it's important to remember all of these because some of them will resonate with some folks and others will resonate with other folks, and that's why we're a church of many to help each other kind of remember each one of these. I want to give us a warning as we... We need to understand how all of these are necessary to understand who we are. Because churches can too easily become too insular or too missions-minded. Churches can too easily become too insular or too missions-minded. Too insular is just thinking about us and and what we need and, and, and... Really, a, a fear of others, a, a fear of other churches, a fear of other kind of ministries or organizations. There's a, there's a threat level. There's a, a way in which we just want to rally the wagons and, and, and be insular, so focused on just who we are. That, that makes us unfaithful. Well, the two missions-minded, that probably has everyone on the edge of their seats. How, how could you be with two missions-minded? Let me tell you, some, of, some, some, not all, some missions movements have caused some of the greatest dangers to the kingdom. The idea that we need to reduce the gospel down to the least common denominator to the point where it doesn't even exist anymore. The, the idea that we, we, we need to make sure people uh, follow along and become, uh, they belong to the, the, the people of God without ever knowing what the church believes. There, there, there's a desire to say we're going to do a scriptural engagement without faithful teaching. Here's a test I have for missionaries, just in case you want to, participate i always ask them two things what is the gospel that needs to be clear and crisp i also want to know what what is the church 
Because if you're not proclaiming the gospel to build a church, I don't know what the goal is. Those two things really need to be clear. A church becomes so missions-minded that we're just sending out and giving out to the point where there's no one else to send. Or to the point where there's not a, the building up of the body with the hope that we would send. You see, those two things have to go together. To desire to be healthy and growing so that we send out, and even more so, healthy and growing so that if somebody comes to Christ, the, the church doesn't look just like the world. That actually looks like a church. It looks like light. That's why all these declarations and many others are important. Now, there's a wonderful grand purpose here in verse 9. You are. God has declared you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And, and that has with it a, an understanding of job description, but he gives his own. Look at this purpose statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To, to, to proclaim him who, who called you to be this people, who, who, who's made himself known as the holy God. You, we get to proclaim and be a witness to him specifically the excellencies of him, we get to know the great, mighty, powerful, creator, savior God. We get to know him who was holy, 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 and to make him known as a God who is holy, 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 and great in mercy. What a high, wonderful calling. What a significant purpose as to why we need to know who we are so that we can do this job. We must first know him as the one God who is excellent so that we may make him known. Now, now notice how we know him who's excellent. He, he called you. He called us. It's not just a personal call. It's an effectual call. God speaks and life exists. God speaks and, and sin is forgiven. Here it's God speaks and you get drawn out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Notice, without God speaking, there's no light. Notice, we are without Christ, without God, in darkness. Well, whose darkness? I think it's probably our own. Our own selfish way of living. Our own lies. Our own sin. God calls us out of the destruction we create and into his marvelous light. We're supposed to be people called out of darkness who no longer practice darkness. What's kind of amazing is until God shows you light, you don't ever see how dark it is. It isn't until God calls us with his light that we ever actually see how dark it is. Now, that, that's, that's who we are, and that's what we're to do. That's, that's the, the, the new position we have as a people called into that marvelous light, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, to, 
to, to proclaim him. Verse 10 introduces a, the transition that's taken place. Notice the, the parallel declarations and, and the time stamp on them. Once, past phrase, you were not a people, but now, present, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You, you once were without light, without God, without mercy. But now you're in the marvelous light and you, you are God's people and you've received mercy. What an incredible understanding of who we were and now who we are. What God has done with that powerful call. Now, why the not people and not mercy language? Well, this is borrowed from the book of Hosea. One of the more just incredibly graphic declarations of God's love and our sin. Hosea was a prophet who God called to marry a prostitute. The reason for this was that Gomer the prostitute represented Israel and how unfaithful she was to, 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 to be the uh, adulterer, to, to constantly worship other gods, and God being jealous in his love. Had Hosea marry her to, to, to represent himself and his love and his commitment to, to help Israel see what they're doing and their, their unfaithfulness. They're covenant-breaking. God was demonstrated to Israel their, their lack of worship of the one true God who'd love them. To, 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 to highlight and emphasize his love and a, ultimately a call to repentance. Well, Hosea and Gomer, they had two children, and when the children were born, their, their names were not my people and no mercy. And this was supposed to be a very clear warning to God's covenant people and nation Israel you're being unfaithful you've denied me and and and, and as you have been unfaithful you, you are no longer my people and and you will no longer have mercy the, the the warning of the judgment was Israel you're just like the nations now because you've refused the one thing that made you mine and that is you've refused worship of of the one God who truly has chosen you and loved you you're no longer God's people. You're like the Gentiles. You're no longer a people of mercy. You're like the Gentiles. That, that's what he was communicating to Israel at the time. But now Peter is telling a lot of Gentiles, you once were not God's people, but now you are God's people. You belong to him. You once did not have mercy, but now you are under the, the steadfast love of the Lord. You are now God's merciful people. He's called you out of darkness in this transition. He's brought you into his marvelous light. And therefore, you are now God's treasured possession. Because Christ bought you with his blood. You once were not a people, but now you are God's covenant people. Church, praise God we are a people of God who have received mercy. If, if we ever think we've graduated from that particular point, we've failed miserably and we should repent and move back. Everything we seek to do is based upon the fact that God has made us his people with his mercy. Go back to 1 Peter 1, verse 3, as he begins this declaration of who we are as God's elect. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his 
great mercy. God, God is not stingy. God is not stingy. God is great in his mercy. He's merciful to give us these declarations. He's merciful to be patient with us as we grow to learn about these great declarations and who we are. God is merciful even when we fail to live out what he's called us to as his covenant people. God is merciful. And I want you to see here what's happening in Peter. That's really the end of the section. Chapter 1, verse 3 through, through 2.10. That, that, that is all the declarations there of what it means to be God's elect. And what we're going to transition to now for the next few weeks, we're going to introduce it in a moment, is what it means to be exiles. Think of the importance of how he landed and ended this section on elect. It's all based upon it's God who caused you to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is God who's given you new life and has guaranteed that inheritance in heaven. It's Christ the living stone who bought you with his precious blood, who gives you this new life. It's the God who gives you new life that calls you to be holy, to love one another, to set your, your hope on the grace still to come. Those are all what it means to be elect. And now we're going to transition. And it's important we first understand who we are because of what God has done and what God has said before we can start thinking what it means to live in this very confusing, difficult world as exiles. That, that great position we received because of the transition God has done, it, it now leads to a commission. A commission. We are elect exiles. Let's turn now to this commission. Uh, this is verses 11 and 12. And then notice there, beloved, there's a, there's a change. I, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved, uh, could be Peter's love for them, could be God's love for them. I think they both love them. He's speaking to fellow brothers who share in the love of God. And there's two basic points. There's, there's two different focuses. There's a the, the war inside with our own passions. And, and then there's honor to be shown outside to the unbelievers. That, that's really helpful. Because we, we, we could think that the war we're really needing to wage is those, towards those outside. And what we need to do is honor one another in well, our, our sinfulness. It's important he gives us these two directives. It's important we see the different postures for how we're looking at, at different problems or different kinds of groups. The church is meant to be the church militant until we're church at rest. We're to be barging into the gates of hell, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, proclaiming his excellencies. But the main battle is the war that's inside of us, our own passions. Again, the, the church oftentimes has had a hard time staying in her lane. Instead of trying to fix all the problems out there, we, 
the first focus is to make sure we're fixing all the problems in here. Peter remains focused as sojourners, as strangers, as exiles who have a new citizenship. There's two directives. There's an internal commission and an external commission. First, the internal problem. As those who now belong to God and his holy nation, as his people for his own possession, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh because these, they wage war against your soul. These passions, these internal desires, they they take God's good gifts and they use them for what God did not intend them for. We distort, we perverse, we twist. What what God gives as good, we we use for other purposes. Well, what passions? We could go within Peter. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. That's a beginning point to know what kind of passions he's thinking about. As much as we are to abstain from those, he's already said, we, assuming you've put them away. The, those are clear desires and passions that we should abstain from. We could go further. In a number of lists through Scripture, 1 Corinthians 6 has a list. Jesus talks through many passions throughout the Sermon of the Mount. Now, once we identify passions that are wrong within, and let's just be very clear, you need God's help to do that. Because that's your passion. The only way to see a passion is dark is for God's light to shine in. The only way to see that something inside of me is wrong is for God's good truth to actually penetrate into my lie that tries to justify it. Well, once you've identified a passion, what do you do with it? Well, Peter simply says, abstain. Deny yourself. That's kind of the first step of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me restate that. It's not kind of. The first step of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that you you learn how to say no. You you have to say no to yourself. You you have to learn to identify what is is corrupting and and what is perverse and and what is misleading and what is a lie and, and say no. As we look at this verse, we could go back and see in chapter 1, verse 22, he said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Uh, these two verses are good to understand next to each other. They're, they're, they're helpful to kind of perceive right next to each other. Abstain from that which is waging war against your soul. Well, you also need to make sure you're, by obedience to God's truth, purifying your soul. There's a necessary correlation between denying yourself and following Jesus. By receiving God's truth, we put it to practice. What what I I find helpful about this passage is how it makes sense as to what is happening inside of me oftentimes that doesn't make any sense to me. The kind of of thoughts that that can pop in. The the, the kind of desires that that can creep in. The, The most dangerous thing you can do is entertain those. We have to learn how to hold so fast to God's word and what he says about us as God's people and what Christ has done for us as our one and only Savior that we are able to recognize these things we must abstain from because they 
They make us impure. But thanks be to God for his word that purifies us. Church, we, we must learn self-denial. We must learn what it means to deny ourselves of sin and to abstain and, and, to, and to, to learn how to, to practice what is good and teach others what is good. It's important that we, we learn how to talk with one another about sin and what's good and what's right. Because again, the, some of the most important conversations happen after the service and before the service. The kinds of things that we, we allow to be normative or regular or, 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 or permissive among us in the way we talk. We need to be drawing closer to that light and the word of God and, and to, to be this people of God for our benefit and for each other. Verse 12, that the other directive, the, the, the other part of this commission is towards outside. Abstain from the passions that are war within and Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And that is referring to the believers, because these are all Gentiles by, 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 by birth, but they're now the people of God, a, a new chosen race. Gentiles is referring to the unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, we've seen the word conduct a few times, and yeah, there is conduct in Christianity. Remember chapter 1, verse 15. Be holy in your conduct. Be holy in your conduct because God is holy and he's commanded you to be holy. There's a way in which we must conduct ourselves with God's holiness. We, we, we must conduct ourselves in chapter 1, verse 17, with a fear of the God who judges, a trembling. I wanted us to go back to chapter 1 there because our conduct must first be directed towards God. And as we see him who is holy and what he has commanded, that will, by definition, make our conduct with the Gentiles be honorable. They're related to each other. It's not an either or. It's a both and. To behave and conduct ourselves wholly unto God is to conduct ourselves in a way that would be honorable toward the Gentiles. This is a high calling. Church, there's, there's so many things that we can respond to with, with a, a rashness, with a, with a passion, with a desire. Well, we first are called to be holy so that we know what it means to conduct ourselves in an honorable way before the Gentiles. Now, the purpose clause here is, is interesting. Be honorable towards those unbelievers so that when they speak against you, be honorable, against, be honorable towards those who are going to treat you with dishonor. Jesus does say, if you're only nice to the, if you're only show, show kindness to those who show you kindness, how are you better than the Gentiles? Are you different? There's, there's a, a true Christian ethic here that's, that, that's, that's underneath. Love your neighbor as yourself, which means you're loving even your enemy who's made the same image. So that when you, when they speak evil against you, as they speak against you as evil to us, as they speak in a dishonorable way, then they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The, 
the first motivation for living honorably among Gentiles is that you would honor God. That you would be God's holy people that worship him as his new temple, as holy priest. But, but here, notice the, the other purpose he gives. As we're proclaiming his excellencies, there's another purpose. That those who hate the church because they hate Jesus, they might glorify God having seen her good deeds? That, that sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew 5, doesn't it? When he calls us to be salt and light. They might see your good deeds and glorify God. He's not saying exactly what Jesus said, but he's pretty much the same thing. He he learned this from his own master, his own savior, the head. Church, the the high calling of living honorably, which means we're living holy, is that we're we're living in a God-glorifying way that directs others to glorify God. And they may never glorify God into that last day, but they will glorify God. And notice how important your life is, that even as they're speaking against you, they would see your good deeds, and that will be part of how they glorify God. Now, there's two possibilities as to what's happening there and the way they glorify God. It could be God visits them here on this earth before the second coming, and they would become a Christian, and they would remember how bad they treated you. They would remember how well you maintained honorable conduct, and they would glorify God because of how you behaved at that time. That's possible, but not probable as to what he's referring to. What he's most likely referring to is that last day when... Christ returns, which is the day of visitation. When he gives the grand inspection, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his glory. Even those who do not know him, who have not been saved by him, there is no denying his glory on that day. And what he's saying is, your deeds will be part of how they even glorify God. that's supposed to help us put all things in perspective as we're going to be called to honor an emperor who behaves in a dishonorable way and to submit to a master who's abusive and harsh and difficult. The, 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 the grand picture is that we're heavenly citizens, and that's the first citizenship. The, the, the heavenly king has given us clear directives that helps us know how to respond in those very difficult exile moments as we seek to live faithfully as God's elect. Well, how, how, how can one do this in practical ways in which we could possibly explain here with our time left? How can we live as light in the darkness? How can we live as God-glorifying, honoring, uh, and, 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 and holy people? It struck me yesterday at the, the wedding I'm sorry, Friday at the wedding. God God calls us to hold the marriage bed in honor. Honor what is sacred. There's a way in which the the first fight we're trying to to, to make sure we're, we're holding on to what is good is by our own keeping what God has made sacred, sacred. We as God's people need to see what God has made sacred and we need to practice making it honorable and sacred. We are the ones that need to be first obeying what God has said, abstaining from the ways we ourselves pervert what God has given. Before we start telling 
our, 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 those outside what kinds of policies they should protect, they should have. Well, we should see the call to train and love children. We, we, we should see the family unit as sacred, and we should treat it as sacred here first so that it's a light to a nation that seems to want to take away every good sacred institution. One of the most important ways that we can honor and be holy is what the words we use. You know, ben chose to do a Wednesday night series on sins of the tongue. And I, the, the way speech just goes out on all kinds of different platforms, all different kinds of ways, and the way we, we, we tend to think our, our words don't have real power and meaning in the way they land. Oh, the, the, the way we can speak, either seasoned with grace and kindness or, or, or coldness and harshness, Show honor in the way you honor the things God has said is honorable. Show honor and holiness in the way you use one of the most powerful things God has given you, your, your tongue. As we conclude, I, hear, hear the warning of forgetting who you are together. To, to, to need to remind each other, we are all a chosen race together. We are all a royal priesthood. We are all a, a holy nation. And the, the unity there is what we have to participate in together so that we are able to proclaim his excellencies who's called us out of darkness and into his light. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your power to save, that you have given us such a powerful call to break our love for darkness, to draw us to love you, to, to, to shine light and truth in the lies we created and embraced about you, ourselves, and one another. Lord, we, may we continue to grow more and more confident in Christ together, to, to be a, that, 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 that temple that, that worshiping people who are a light to one another and a light to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.